This Week on Art in the Air features director and professor at W. Page Pitt School of Journalism and Mass Communications, Dr. Rob Quick, discussing his new book, Finding Your Voice in Radio, Audio, and Podcast Production. Next, contemporary artist Dorothy Graydon's new exhibit at South Shore Arts through February 25th. Our spotlights on Memorial Opera House's 2024 season with executive director Megan Stoner. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart. Express yourself to art. And show the world your heart. Welcome. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, WVLP 103.1 FM, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art on the Air is heard every Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Also heard on Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming live at wvlp.org, and Tuesdays at 4 p.m. on WDSO 88.3 FM. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Media. Information about Art on the Air is available at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. We'd like to welcome back to Art in the Air Spotlight, the executive director of the Memorial Opera House, about their busy season coming up. They have a whole packed uh, season of fun things coming. And uh, so, Megan Stoner, welcome back to Art in the Air Spotlight. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, yeah, nice to see you again. We're so Thank glad you. to have you. Well, it looks like I'm uh, previewing your season. Of course, you came out of a pretty busy uh, December with concerts and White Christmas and everything like that. And, of course, you've just had some nice events going on with the Elton John Honky Cats uh, you've just done and, uh, okay, Mega Beatles, which are you know, on all the time. But tell us about the season you've got planned. Yeah, we, we have some really wonderful limelights. That's our youth theater programming. We have some of that coming up. And then we have five really amazing shows for you this year, um, musical shows. We open our season March 7th with The Little Mermaid, and it's going to be spectacular. We're going to have princesses visiting on Sundays. Uh, it's, it's just going to be a really wonderful performance. We're very, very excited. And then in May, we're going to be doing beautiful The Carol King Story. And I can tell you, I've been listening to Carol King's albums kind of nonstop in preparation for this musical. And I cannot tell you how excited I am. It's, it's really a wonderful, wonderful show. It's a lot of fun and it's music that's really well known. I mean, Carol King wrote some of the classics. I mean, just some of the greatest music of all time. So it's called beautiful for a reason. It sure is. (laughs) It's, it will be something that like, even if you're like, oh, I'm not really sure I like musicals, go see it because you'll know all the songs and you'll just leave feeling wonderful. Um, and then this summer we have 
we, you're going to have to have me back because I'm going to have a pretty big update about the summer that I cannot tell you yet. Okay. But, you know, the opera house is closed because we're doing our big renovation, but we are going to be off site. So it's going to be exciting. And then we will come back with a big grand opening with Young Frankenstein the musical and we close the show with Scrooge the musical. What a perfect season. Oh, that's exciting. Very nice. So tell us about what's going on with the renovation uh, so people uh, know what's coming up. Absolutely. So the entryway to the theater is going to look a little different. If you've ever been there, you know you go through a brick archway and then you go into the doors. Well, the doors are going to be pushed out into that archway. So you'll just go right in and we're going to have the whole lobby opened up. So it'll be a much more comfortable space when you come in. We're having all new seating put in, so it'll be a much more comfortable show. Um, the seats are going to be a little bit wider, but, you know, we need that these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, and it's it's just going to be wonderfully updated, um, a beautiful space. We're going to be opening it up for all sorts of rentals and fun events. And um, I'm just I'm very excited for the community to come in and see what it's going to be. I'm beyond excited. That sounds great. So you've been there for what, about not quite six months, maybe about four months. So uh, are you getting into the groove of the job? I think I am. You know, I came on at the at the beginning of the busy season. So it's been basically just go, 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 go from day one. And so I've made it through that. I think, I think I'm good to go. I really love it there. The people I work with are spectacular and the patrons just, oh my gosh, I love it. I love when everybody's sort of, the show has ended, the lights come on, everybody kind of gets up and stretches. And as they're leaving, I get to hear them say things like, this was the greatest show I've ever seen on this stage. Or you absolutely made our Christmas with oh. this show. Or this was so funny. We were glad we got to be a part of it. It's just a really remarkable experience. I love it. I saw some posts on Facebook that you were looking for staffing, like a, what designers, scenic designers. So tell us a little about that search. Yeah. So each of our productions, we contract out different people to do directing, choreography, designing sets, designing lighting. And so we hire those positions. They're hired for one show at a time. And we are always looking for people to come and help us design our sets to get our lighting just right for those really spectacular moments that you look for on stage. Um, you know, all of our sound things. We we do have a wonderful tech director, but it's really hard to do microphones and sound and set. And, uh, you know, he's one person and he needs some backup. So that's <laughs> what we're looking for is, is some really lovely backup for our very talented staff. And so it's a really great opportunity. And even if people aren't sure they know exactly what it is, you know, what is a set designer? I encourage you to come volunteer, check it out, and then, you know, work on a couple shows. And the next thing you know, we'll be paying you. So. <laughs> well, and it's always good to get paid so, and everything like that. So 
super excited. But, you know, it's at least something. It sounds like you've got a lot going on there. And uh, you've got kind of into the job. And we definitely will have you back as we get further along. You can update us on what's going on with the renovation and everything like that. So, uh, anyway, uh, why don't we wrap up and tell us, uh, again, uh, recap what shows, show dates, and uh, what, how to get in touch with the Memorial Office, how to find them online. Absolutely. So you can find us online at memorialopperhouse.com. And uh, we're opening March 7th with The Little Mermaid. We go into beautiful The Carol King Story in May. And then this fall, we have Young Frankenstein, the musical, and we're going to close our season with Scrooge. And we're very excited and we look forward to seeing you all in our seats. Well, we appreciate you coming on Art in the Air Spotlight. That's Megan Stoner, the new executive director, still kind of new, breaking in the whole place. And we have renovations going on that they're excited to show. Great show season coming up, and we're going to have her back, of course, to bring us more updates on that. Megan, thank you so much for coming on Art on the Air Spotlight. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the update. Art on the Air Spotlight and the complete one-hour program on Lakeshore Public Media is brought to you by Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker. And as a reminder, if you'd like to have your event on Art in the Air Spotlight or have a longer feature interview, email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H, dot com. This is Pledge Week for your public radio station. And Art on the Air encourages our loyal listeners to support this station by making a monthly sustaining pledge so we may continue to bring you this great program. This is Peter Marks retired theater critic of the Washington Post, and you're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM and WVLP 103.1 FM. We would like to welcome Dr. Rob Quick to Art on the Air. Rob is a leading authority in the field of audio production and the founder of the global event College Radio Day and co-founder of World College Radio Day, which began in 2011. He is also a professor and director of the W. Page Pitts School of Journalism and Mass Communications at Marshall University, West Virginia. His debut book is Finding Your Voice in Radio, Audio, and Podcast Production, Empowers Aspiring Audio Creators. Thank you for joining us on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome, Rob. It's very nice to meet you. Esther and Larry, thank you ever so much for having me. Well, we're glad to have you, and uh, of course, this is what we do too, but we thought it'd be interesting to share with our audience. We take a broad definition of art with our show, but we also want to find out more about our guests and uh, your origin story, which from what I can glean from the book is very interesting, but I always like to ask how you got from where you were to where you are now, so tell us all about yourself. Uh, thanks, Larry. So you can tell uh, from my accent that I'm obviously not originally from America, and right now I'm in, I'm in West Virginia. I'm working at Marshall. And um, I've just moved from New York, so I've still got my New York plate. So when I stop and get gas, some people often say, more often, like, hey, you from New York? And I say, well, yes, I am. And then they say, well, hang on, that isn't a New York accent. And then I say, look, this is a long story. Um, and so <laughs> it does go back to I was born in England and um, uh, raised there. And I guess my first, uh, I first dabbled because I'm into audio and radio. And I first dabbled in, in in England at that time. They didn't have anything like college radio, which would have been a first step. So the, the very first experience I got of doing any kind of radio was working at hospital radio. They don't have um, a college radio stations. So hospital radio is what they do have. And uh, it was downstairs in the basement of this uh, hospital, Adam Brooks Radio. So if you could handle uh, the occasional dead body going past on its way to the morgue, uh, and, and you know, if you could handle that, then you were 
you were cut out for going down there and doing radio. And from there, I really got um, got got smitten with the idea of creating radio programming. Went to Oxford University, and at that time, there was no college radio anywhere. Well, they had a few closed circuit stations, but no FM stations. So I was part of a group that, that founded um, the first ever FM college radio station in the history of the UK at Oxford, and we, we launched it. So from then... It was uh, I was sort of off to the races, but that that was really so how it began, um, and we we got the license in the UK and we launched it in 1997 and really changed my life. I would say, I mean that's like the early days, Larry. So Rob, what about you? Said um, what was that first idea for programming that you had when you became intrigued with radio? Well, I think I think the power of radio. Uh, which remains obviously to this day is the idea that you can connect with that listener, that it's a very unique, intimate medium. Um, Yeah. I think my question was, um, I think I'm meaning more like, did you have an idea of what you wanted to say at first on radio? No, I, I think, I think I didn't. I think I, I think I thought I had an idea of what radio was all about because of what I listened to. And I thought I imagined that, you go in there, you play songs, and you try and be a personality. And mm-hmm. I think, looking back now, this is, I think, what is still to this day what a lot of my students do, is that they're not really sort of being themselves. They feel as if immediately from, from day one, they've got to be sort of performative to a certain extent. They've got to be larger than life. They've got to be this personality. So that was me. You know, I was just a young kid playing songs and um, trying to, you know, entertain people, if you will. Dialing back, what early influences did you have, like in radio and listening yourself? Uh, you know, of course, um, I think most of uh, people are familiar with BBC. I know, and you'll yeah. maybe laugh at this. I was a BBC listener by short via shortwave for a long part of my life before you became readily uh, available over like our NPR stations. But what was your early radio tastes, and you know, obviously that spurned your interest. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So going up in the UK, you essentially had two choices. Really, you had the BBC, which is this huge monolithic institution that blankets the UK and then the world with the World Service. Um, and I listened to Radio 1. And then, of course, you had local um, commercial radio stations. And then towards the end of my stay there, national commercial radio stations like Virgin Radio. But for me, um, the BBC, the local BBC stations like BBC uh, Radio Cambridgeshire were pretty amazing. I remember um, getting in trouble because my parents were very worried about me because uh, I was listening to radio. And I should be um, doing homework and leaving at night. I'd be like listening under the blankets, under the covers to my little portable radio set. um, Mm -hmm. Sort of really sort of enthralled with this wondrous medium that even I, my my bed in darkness, could hear this voice. And I knew the studio for the local BBC station was down the road, really, like 10 minutes away. And I just was like, someone right now staying up late and they're talking to me. They're, They're doing this for me, for the listener. And that for me... Um, just the wonder of that, that that sort of idea that I could hear someone real time in the same city as me. I've always been a fan of local radio rather than national radio uh, because of that sense of being connected to what's going on around. But yeah, so those early memories, I think, really resonated with me. Oh, so lovely. So uh, you got continuing your journey into education. You studied at Oxford. And then I guess what I, I'm curious, like what brought you to the States? So, okay, so when I was at Oxford, I, I, um, I had a girlfriend, and she was from America. And uh, basically, my wife is originally from Kansas. 
Uh, we uh, had a romance at Oxford, and then <clears throat> at the end, uh, after graduating, um, we did get married, actually. And we lived for a while in America, but I was really uh, homesick. Um, and then we lived in London for a little bit, and I was doing radio there, producing stuff. Uh, freelance for the for the BBC, and then we got home. My wife got homesick for America, and we moved out to uh, to, to live in uh, Chicago originally, which is where I began uh, at this university called Saint Dave University as director of student media, and went into this sort of um, this place where the radio station was was run down, and uh, uh, the newspaper was actually a pretty good newspaper, but the university sort of said, "Well, uh, good luck, see what you can do." <laughs> <laughs> um, Students were kind of demoralized, and uh, this is actually what I've noticed is this is a similar situation I've, I've encountered actually in many places now where, uh, important as it is, student media often is underfunded, underappreciated, and undersupported. But so we started out in Chicago in uh, 2002, um, but that's why I'm here. My wife is American, which is why uh, I am here to this day. Excellent. Well, and that's something to, uh, even though you're on the fr- edge of it, uh, you're in a number three media market, DMA. That's uh, pretty impressive. So to be part right. of that. Yeah, I mean, we're we're in a situation with uh, our, our station here, Lakeshore Public Media, is, uh, and recently we just upgraded to five kilowatts. And so we're actually well into terrestrial-wise into Chicago, but uh, yeah, part of that. So, well, excellent. And then uh, your move from the Chicago uh, area, where, what happened there? Right. So then after a while, and don't get me wrong, it was really very successful what we did at St. Xavier and, and the station was WXAV and uh, we ended up winning. Um, I didn't know. Sometimes ignorance is is wonderful. Um, so I entered us into the Silver Dome Awards, the Illinois Broadcast Association. Apparently, college stations don't do that. That's for the professionals. But I thought I didn't know. So I put us in for best public <laughs> affairs programming. Now, we didn't win first place, but we came second. And this is against the majors. And for best public affairs programming, in the third place was um, WGN. Oh. And um, they their budget, I can tell you, our budget was 10,000 a year. Theirs was millions. But I, that's when I knew that um, college radio, um, community radio, I suppose, as well, is is pretty good. It can sometimes compete with the big names, the big stations, because it covers stories and creates content that they don't perhaps and has its finger on on a different pulse that is really tied to the local community and 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 will cover stories and create programming that other stations will not so that for me was the movie moment when we beat WGN and people were like wow what did you just do this tiny little station you shouldn't even be in these awards and then after that um i went to uh, uh, william patterson university and the same story entering a station that they said you got 2 years to turn it around Otherwise, we might just shut it down. And we're like, what? We, we were. This is in New Jersey, uh, you know, thirty minutes from Manhattan, part of, number one media market, and being general manager of that station and teaching there, being a professor. And for me, the thrill always has been is sort of awakening a sense of purpose, uh, a sense of enthusiasm, and just waking the students up to the possibilities as to what they could do. So. You know, again, I just I was I moved here to uh, to West Virginia just last year because I did 16 years at William Patterson, but in that time we won all these awards. But the big thing for us was winning the two Marconi Awards for best um, non-commercial station, and then they created a new category, best college radio station. But the non-commercial stations that we were up against all stations, including obviously NPR and community radio stations, and it was the same thing again. Is that we we 
when going into a situation where it seemed that it was almost without hope and we had an engineer at the time and he said i've been through five or six general managers good luck we'll see how long you last and um <laughs> there was that sense of like there should have been a, a there should have been a sign on the door abandon hope all ye who enter um, <laughs> and, and and but at the same time what i sort of discovered was the students have a lot to say. They are genuinely passionate. If you can find that way and you can encourage them and you can find that way to unlock the door to them communicating. Um, and that's what I think we did do uh, when we were in, in New York, New Jersey. Now I'm obviously here running uh, the School of Journalism and Mass Communication with this legendary radio station, WMUL. So that really is... I've. Hopefully I haven't bored your listeners, but that is my my journey. But what's fueled that journey is the realization that um, everybody, if they want to, if they have the motivation, is, is capable of producing quite remarkable content, and in this case, audio content. So, Rob, during that time frame, Chicago to New York, is that did had you started writing the book, or had it come into your mind that hmm, you know, I'm having some successes and some great successes. And um, is that when you started writing? Esther, that's an excellent point, because I think it was a series of realizations. And I think, and, and I say this um, in a way not to sort of criticize anyone who teaches uh, audio and radio, but I think the way that we have been teaching radio and audio in the classroom um, has not been the best way. Can I put it like that? I don't want to be too critical. Yeah. Because what we do is we sit these kids down, and I, I teach you know, 15, 20 kids in a class audio and radio production podcasting now and it has been the model is here's the syllabus here's the equipment here's what you need to do um and very quickly they're sort of the, the students are thrown in, you know they find themselves in front of a microphone which can be quite an intimidating situation to be in anyway um and they're being told to hit you know here we are now entertain us um go ahead and create audio content and I just realized that I, 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 the big realization of what my book is about is that actually that's too much pressure to begin. Um, I, I essentially, in my book, I realized that most of us just have two modes, really. We have develop and deliver. And, you know, a lot of students normally get involved with college radio or community radio, or they do a podcast or perhaps an internship, and they're immediately developing content. They're immediately developing material uh, and then they're delivering it, right? So then they're broadcasting it on the air, and and that can be great. Don't get me wrong; that can be great because I'm a big advocate of college radio. It's, you know, it is performative, it's audience centered, it's, it's you're doing those things in public, and you're sharing your voice and you're sharing your content. And if you do it professionally, then you're getting getting paid to do that. Um, you're you're you know you're delivering content, and you're getting paid as a job. But the flip side to that is, uh, you know, the other side of that is. Um, you're having to meet audience expectations. Any mistakes you make might be shared publicly. Um, and, and, and if you get, particularly if you get a job in media, uh, that is certainly now a life of obligation with, to a certain extent, perhaps limited creativity, working on things that you might not be particularly happy about and certainly have pressure to deliver. So the realization was there, so that there's got to be another stage here because that's too much too soon. And when I say to the students in the, at the beginning of the semester, how many of you want to do radio and audio, um, you know, professionally or consider it as a career, you know, one or, one or two would put their hands up and thinking, why, it's such a small, small number. Whereas if we take a different approach by the end of semester, if I say who wants to consider doing this professionally, if we've approached this the right way and we presented this the right way, then you're going to get 
four, five, six, maybe more hands going up because they, they would be excited to create audio. And that's when I realized there was a, a key missing stage. The difference in your book is that it kind of tells story-wise uh, success stories, and you, you share that, but you also... It's not a technical book. And I think what you were trying to say is that the a lot of teaching, this type of thing, whether it's in broadcasting, is like, well, this is what you do with this. This is the equipment without right. talking about what's what you need to do to develop the content. I mean, I like your four Ds, discoverer, developer, deliverer, and decoder. And, of course, you have your other uh, one, real, where you have that uh, that whole development. And, you know, tell us about that, what real is in terms of audio content. Yeah, so as you're right, so, so the missing stage was discoverer. And that is doing the work on your own in Discover. That's basically you're creating content for yourself, not for an audience. And that's a crucial, crucial thing. Because um, there's this great book that I read by Srinivas Rao, um, who wrote a book called uh, An Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity, Creativity for Its Own Sake. And in that, he, he writes, when we seek approval from others, when we start creating for an audience, we feel uh, compelled to suddenly start pleasing them. We dedicate our efforts to making... The opinions of others towards us favorable and that that's the key thing is that when the students were doing no discoverable they weren't discovering who they are you're learning about who they are what do they have to say what do they believe and the exercises in the book are all about that you know what are your earliest childhood memories who had the biggest influence on you who taught you right from wrong what you know where do you come from what do you believe tell about your and when i was doing these exercises with the students and and again you're right you're absolutely right um that, that, Larry, the importance here is not about equipment. In fact, I say in the book, which is almost heresy, um, in order to start creating content, you just need a smartphone and a coffee mug. And people <laughs> might say, well, why a coffee mug? Well, <laughs> there's your mic stand. Uh, just make sure there's nothing in it. But if you do this, if you go from discovery and you do this work, and, and it's not for an audience, then when you become a developer, when you start creating content for an audience, it's, you, you're going to have that much more to say because you've done the work in knowing who you are. You've got the solid foundation of self-identity. Um, and I argue that, and, and then if the final stage, of course, is decoded, that often we create content, but we don't go back to it. We don't, under, don't listen to it uh, because students say, oh, it's just horrible listening to it. Well, let's understand why did it work? Why did it not work? Um, and so when, when you go back to something, sometimes you can discover... Um, what works and what didn't work. And I, and I make the argument in the book, and it's, it's a little bit hard to grasp, but you kind of know it. If someone's been through this process and they know who they are, they're in touch with who they, who they are themselves, um, then the, the audio that they're going to create is relatable, engaging, authentic, and liberating. There's a sense of genuine authenticity to what they are producing on the air that can only come from someone who's done the necessary work on themselves. Um, to find out what, who they are and what they believe. And without that, students go into jobs or they, they get involved with media and they sometimes can suffer from imposter syndrome. Like, I don't deserve this. I, I don't know really who I am and yet who I am in this role. Um, and certainly I've had students who've done radio programs and podcasts who say, wow, sometimes we just run out of things to say. We have a half-hour podcast and it's excruciating. You know, seconds feel like minutes, minutes feel like hours. Well, you've got nothing to say and the microphone is in front of you. If you don't know who you are, there is just this incredible pressure and sort of excruciating sense of what, what do we do? So that's why 
the book encourages you to play with abandon, make audio, be creative, make artistic audio. Don't think about a documentary or news bulletin or even an interview. Go out there, one of the early exercises, just go out into your neighborhood and record different sounds without voices. Uh, sounds of the local park, of cars rushing by, and just put together a montage. Just creatively uh, play with abandon and experiment with what you can do just to understand the range, you know? Well, do you think there are, do you, do you think or feel that their initial hesitation when you posed the radio um, question to them was live, verse, live radio versus now pre recorded? Because it's, you know, vastly different. Absolutely. And this is the thing. Again, I'm a huge advocate of, of college radio, having founded College Radio Day. Um, I do believe College Radio is fantastic, but that's why I think um, if you're already doing something like College Radio, you've got to do the discoverer work alongside. It would be preferable if you did it before you get involved in those things. But I do think um, we perhaps students perhaps have in their mind what they have to do, and they don't understand there are so many different ways you can create audio content, not just a podcast, but I think experimental audio, soundscapes and artistic audio is obviously just as valid as traditional um, things like like what we're doing right now, like this podcast and radio show. So I think the students need to be, they just need to have their minds opened to understand what the possibilities are and to get excited by those possibilities. And when I say student, I, I don't just mean students, I mean anyone, anyone of any age who says, well, I might want to try and create a podcast, I might want to try and do something. But even if they don't, even if they don't produce content for any audience, there's real value, meaningful value, in terms of uh, finding your voice and what that means, discovering who you are, knowing what you believe and what you have to say. There's a lot of value in going through the exercises in the book and, and understanding that this is very, very good for your own self-development, uh, let alone for an audience. Right. Artistic expression in any form is... Completely. Completely. So important. Yeah, and while the book is obviously written as a textbook for a classroom, I believe that anyone that's interested in doing uh, and in audio becomes part of production of everything. You know, in lots of pre presentational situations that may not be broadcast or live as a podcast. And uh, of course, I use a saying all the time, and I do this when I pledge. I'm, for, I'm sure you're familiar with Studs Terkel, and I say this during pledge drive, but I also say it otherwise as with radio. You're talking to one person. And then, of course, the line I use after that is, and so I'm talking to you right now, make a pledge and everything. But also Vince Scully said something very interesting, is that radio, unlike uh, visual media, is like an associate. So you'd be painting the garage or doing something else, and it's kind of like a, an associate with you. So radio does have that uh, part there. So, you know, I want to ask you, and we only have a couple minutes left, about the future of terrestrial radio. There's been some challenges in all the way around. I just think I told you about before the broadcast about in Chicago, the conglomerate there is filing yep. for Chapter 11 and everything. Uh, what do you see the future of with all the competing ways to get audio content? You know, it's an excellent question, isn't it? I still believe that a station's mission, uh, has to, you have to be fiercely local and you have to serve um, your listeners where they are, meet them where they're at, talk about what they're doing. When I first had my first ever professional gig in commercial radio in the UK, uh, I would go to the local cafe every morning and listen in, sort of eavesdrop to, in the Greasy Spoon Cafe, to what people were talking about, the, you know, the issues of the day. And I do think that podcasting is, of course, a form of radio, owes its existence to radio. I think there has to be a strong affiliation as much as possible. Um, there needs to be this feeling, again, capture the audience excitement that you need to listen to this because you're going to hear things 
that are going to be so interesting and so important and so relevant to you that you're not going to want to you're not going to want to miss out that feeling of missing out um, we need to sort of recommit ourselves to engaging with issues that really matter to our audience so that means being in touch with who they are and what they what they want what they believe their worldview and um connecting in that way and then college radio is the same thing college radio needs to continue doing that um but i think as long as we are creating content that is relevant and well put together there will always be an audience you know the radio has gone through struggles but it's not going to die it's not going to die it's still the most listened to medium in the country so i know it's been through some tough times but it's still very 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 much alive we want to give you a chance to let people know how they can find out about you and find about your book Yep, so you can go to robquickqicke.com. The book is Finding a Voice for Radio, Audio, and Podcast Production, available everywhere books are sold. Well, we appreciate you coming on Art in the Air, sharing your, uh, your audio and uh, radio journey with our audience. And uh, that's Rob Quick. And again, the book is Finding Your Voice in Radio, Audio, and Podcast Production. Thank you so much for coming on Art in the Air. Thank you so much, Larry and Esther. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It was so interesting. Art in the Air listeners, do you have a suggestion for a possible guest on our show, whether it's an artist, musician, author, gallery, theater, concert, or some other artistic endeavor that you are aware of, or a topic of interest to our listeners? Email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com. This is Hannah Hammond Hagman of Chesterton Art Center, and you're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM and WVLP 103.1 FM. We are happy to welcome back Dorothy Graydon to Art on the Air. Dorothy is a contemporary artist whose art is inspired by ancient visions, prehistoric art of the Americas. Her mission is to bring awareness of these amazing places and to promote preservation and protection of ancestral lands on this continent, most of which are considered sacred to Native Americans. She also enjoys a different landscape and is an enthusiastic scuba diver. That environment also features prominently in her art. Thank you for joining us on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome, Dorothy. It's so great to see you again. Thank you. Thank you both. It's good to be here again. It is. And the last time we had her on was November 16th of uh, 2018. And you can hear that actually on our website. And we did repeat it, I think, in 2020 when COVID first started. And we didn't have a show to do because the studio was closed. But uh, And, of course, I know Dorothy, too, from the area artists and things like that. But welcome back to the show. And uh, we just want to catch up with you and have our audience do that. But maybe to do that because people probably haven't heard that show. We like to hear your origin story. I always like to say how you got from where you were to where you are now. So tell us all about your journey growing up, where you grew up and everything like that. Oh, all that. Oh, all the way back, way back. Um, okay. Um, I grew up in Gary, Indiana, um, on 8th and Tennessee Street. And it was a lovely street because um, it was multicultural. We had people living there from all over. Uh, so I was introduced to many different kinds of foods um, and many different kinds of cultures just living on Tennessee Street. And one of the things I really liked to do was um, go up and down the alleys and collect boards. And I would bring the boards home and paint and paint on the boards. That was what I did when I was little. And my older brother, who was 11 years older than I am, um, he would always say, oh, I just love, I just love your art. And he'd give me like 20 cents and, and, um, <laughs> and put the art up in the house somewhere. 
So I guess I started doing art a long time ago. And then I, when I was in elementary school, um, the teachers always had me do their bulletin boards. They'd say, okay, let's, you know, do something nice on the bulletin board. So that, that's, that's kind of how it got started. Very then, sweet beginnings. <laughs> so your brother was supportive, but um, so were there a lot of art supplies in the household? It sounds like maybe the whole household was supportive of creativity. Well, it was. Um, my mother My mother was an artist, and uh, she didn't sell her work or anything. She just did a lot of art, did a lot of oil painting. And so we had, we had lots of paints in the house all the time, all the time. Okay. And so in school, you were doing bulletin boards, and did you have any, someone in school, like art teachers or anything that really saw your talent and guided you with that? Um, no, it was it was all independent. Um, we didn't really have uh, art classes when I was in school. Um, they would just give us a piece of paper and some crayons and say, do something, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, same for me. We didn't have art classes. I think I remember my first art class, my first real art class was seventh grade, maybe. When there was an actual, and then it was it wasn't like there is now. There wasn't ceramics. There wasn't. It was primarily drawing. I think mm-hmm. just crayons and paper, pretty yeah, much. Pretty much. One of my favorite things was to color the whole the whole paper with all these wild colors, and then do the black crayon on top of it. Oh, and yeah, scratch the scratch. <laughs> that was really fun. I know it's so magical. I still like working in black. <laughs> I, like, I love working in black. <laughs> so. I really want to know about, and, I, and I'm probably jumping way ahead, probably, um, but I've always been fascinated that you're a scuba diver. So is that a family sport? No, not at all. Um, I learned how to swim at Emerson High School when I was about six years old, and uh, I've just been swimming ever since. And I, I love the ocean. I never, I didn't see the ocean till I was 10 years old. <laughs> But uh, I don't know what happened was my daughter turned 18 and I just said, okay, let's, let's go take scuba diving lessons. And so uh, my daughter and my husband and I took lessons here in Valparaiso. And there, our first trip was in Cozumel and we did our open water certification in Cozumel. Wow. Um, and it's just like, the, it's so wonderful to jump off that boat and take your first breath underwater. And it's like, I'm breathing under the water. This is amazing. <laughs> so that's, that's, a, that's the most, that's a very exciting part of scuba diving. That transition is such a mental one, too. I find like whenever I snorkel too, that first initial switching environments is, um, it's sort of a difficult transition for me. I mean, because it has to, I have to go through this whole mental process yeah, I get that. It's it's otherworldly. Um, it's it's almost surreal, you know, when you get when you get totally immersed down there and you start seeing all the creatures that live there and and the coral and the colors are just any color you could possibly think of. But that's what you see are the, all the colors. And time and space just sort of disappears. Mm-hmm. It you does. know, I, yeah. That's probably where divers get into trouble. You lose time and you don't you don't pay attention to how much air you've got left because you get oh, lost yeah. in that world. And it's like, oh my gosh. So absolutely, yeah. 
So let's dial back. You go through school, and what made you? What did you do post uh, graduation uh, from high school? You know, how, did you make a decision right away to go to art, or did you have something else in mind? No, actually, because of our family situation, my father had died. Um, I, I needed to get through college as quickly as possible, and so I, and to get out and get a really good, just a job right away. So I, I got a degree in, in teaching. And then I went immediately into, uh, I graduated in three and a half years and then immediately went into teaching. And what, what was your subject? Was it art? Um, elementary education. Elementary education. Ah, gather the little children's unto me is a different thing than yes. secondary. So. <laughs> and my favorite subject, of course, was art. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. of art classes. How many years did you do that? Um, take art classes? No, no. How many years did you teach? Oh, teaching. Oh, dear. Um about 25 years. I taught for about 25 years. Okay. And then and it's really fun teaching kindergarten because they're oh, yeah. so creative. You know, I just would throw a bunch of papers and junk on the tables and say, create something wonderful. And, and they do. They're, they're not afraid to do that when they're that age. Especially when you add tape. <laughs> oh, like yes. kindergartners tape. always love tape. <laughs> tape is very important. In fact, we I I asked the parents to send boxes to school and and masking tape. Mm-hmm. And so the kids would get on the bus with these gigantic structures that they made and painted. <laughs> and I had one mother I had one mother tell me, she said, Would you please stop making the box the box structures? Because my my whole family room is full of the my daughter's boxes. <laughs> They made all kinds of interesting things with the boxes. So after 25 years and probably even overlapping that, did you study any art formally or just kind of develop it on your own? And then the second part of that question is what made you discover the kind of art that you do in out west, the the hieroglyphs and things like that? Um, Let's see. I took, I did not get a degree in art. Um, I took many, many classes at uh, universities, at VU. I took art classes. Um, I had private lessons um, in, in this area with Conrad Ustell. Um, I had private lessons in Indianapolis. I've taken classes at uh, a Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. Um, so, What I've type of classes, classes, Dorothy? Are they mostly drawing, painting? Painting. Lots of painting, um, drawings, uh, marble, different kinds of marbling, like suminagashi, the Japanese marbling, uh, clay classes, uh, yeah, things, uh, just you name it. <laughs> I took all kinds of classes. Plus, I did a lot on my own, you know, with weaving and, and like the macrame kinds of things. Um, so, yeah, I've taken many, many classes. I took a Chinese calligraphy class at VU and just just uh, on and off different kinds of classes. It's really interesting because you can feel all of that in your work. So like all these experiences have gone into your work. They really it's, have. Yeah. You can clearly Absolutely. always see like when you post something out there, I can, you can instantly dis- know that it's your work. You have a distinctive style, even though they're all, the, the pieces are different. You can say, oh, I, that's Dorothy's work. You can, you can, you, you've developed that where you can do that. So what drew you to um, like the out west and uh, all the things that you do incorporate and share thing with uh, that? 
my sister was living in Houston for 20 years, and I'd go out to visit her. And then, and then what we started to do was go farther west, and um, we started visiting uh, the Anasazi. Well, it's not Anasazi; it's Histatsunum sites, and uh, and all the different uh, ancestral homes that are out there. And I started seeing the carvings on the wall. And I thought, oh, my gosh, these are wonderful. It kind of reminded me of Moreau or Paul Clay and uh, also kind of reminded me of the kindergartners that I was teaching at the time, <laughs> even though they're much more sophisticated than uh, kindergarten things. But uh, I, I just started looking at them, and, and some were painted, which are pictographs. Some are, are, are packed or carved, and those would be petroglyphs. And I was just totally fascinated by them. And just every time I go out west, we would go and visit sites. So we visited sites in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico and every every state up there, Utah. And then it was really funny because I was really excited about these things. And then I took one trip up into Wyoming to the Wind River area and saw the creepiest petroglyphs that I had ever seen. <laughs> and and they were they were spooky and scary and they were up where they have the hot springs up in the mountains and we were 10,000 feet up and I just got chills looking at these petroglyphs and and then we talked to some people that were at a resort um, across the lake and there were petroglyphs there too. And I was asking them about the petroglyphs, and they and I said, "Do you ever go down and see them at night to see if, if they look different?" And they said, "Oh no, we never go down there at night." They said, "There's so many weird sounds that come from those things at night that we just avoid. We just avoid them at night." And that just got me more interested in them, actually. And so I came home from that trip and thought, you know what? I have to start drawing these things. So um, I had a lot of photographs that I took of these petroglyphs. And I guess the Shoshone um, Indians uh, use these boulders uh, for their own mythology, even though they came to this, they went to that area much later. These, these things were carved, that were carved were maybe 8,000 years old. And um, so I started drawing them and I started drawing like small drawings of, of them but embellishing and changing and just use them as examples for, for the creepiness that I wanted to put on paper. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media 89.1 FM on WVLP 103.1 FM. So can you describe what you mean? Is it, was it heavily patterned? Was it animal? Was it human-based? What, what were the, what was the running themes, I guess? Okay, well, some of them look like like birds, kind of like birds, because up to 10,000 feet, you see a lot of birds, like eagles and owls and things like that. So the power, supposedly, in the petroglyphs came from the animals that lived up there. And so uh, most, most of them just look like, uh, they don't look like people or animals, they just look like creatures. Mm-hmm. have more of a creature look. If you go to my website and go to the black and white um, gallery, you'll see the ones that I that I started with. 
just the black. I know that's the first work that I saw was the black and white. And that's why I wanted to have you on today, too, because from those early from those early beginnings that I saw, boy, it's in a whole new place now. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, all those weird creatures still come out. Yes, they do. They're they're in me um, somehow. And even if I try and do something else, it always turns into whatever it looks like one of my paintings. <laughs> um, right now I'm working on layers of layers of uh, painting where, you know, uh, you have the, the bottom of the paper is one color and then, it, and then the next color is, comes above it and then all the way to the top with different patterns on each layer. And um, it's, uh, and I think that that comes from seeing all the layers that I that I saw, say, in the Grand Canyon or all the rocks and the rock walls. And so there's so many different layers. So I'm kind of getting into the layer thing right now, um, which is pretty exciting. So how do you how do you approach the whole process of how does it come into fruition? So, are, you know, can you be reading a book and all of a sudden you have an idea? Is it when you sit in front of the paper? Just just how does it come about? Um, well, it comes about from the a lot of the photographs that I've taken in the past um, are in me. And so they get transformed and they end up on paper. And also um, when I travel, you know, like when I was in... Um, down by the Rio Grande last year, uh, there were I saw layers, layers of strata of the rocks. So there was like a black layer and then a red layer and a brown layer and a white layer. And so um, I started really thinking about the layers that are there, plus the layers of the art, you know, like something that was carved 12,000 years ago and then somebody 8,000 years ago put something on top of that and then... 2,000 years ago, somebody put something on top of that. And then I started thinking about the ocean and all the layers of the ocean, like some animals live at the, at the very surface, and then some live two feet down, and some stay in 30 feet down, and then you get way down to the bottom, and it, you see different creatures in different layers. And so it's, it, it's just really exciting to see that. And so now everything I look at is layers. I look at the forest, you know, with the ground and the bushes and the trees and the sky. And uh, so I'm, I'm really excited about that right now. I know. And that's the shift in your work that I, you know, called you about because you can, I mean, it is, it's like very dense and it's, it's so beautiful to visually go through it as well. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's really a, exciting. Yeah, oh, it is exciting. And then the other inspiration comes from uh, travel because I try to travel to places that uh, have prehistoric um, images. And uh, last year I was in South Korea, and there's this town called Gyeonju there, and they have mound they have uh, they have they have burial mounds in the city that are as long as a football field and some of them are open so you can go inside and see the layers of how they buried the king kind of like Egypt and so you can see how the the first layer is you know wood and then the next layer is rocks and so um, 
And then, and then I'm hoping, and so all of a sudden, all these mounds started showing up in my art. And I didn't realize it until I looked at the picture that the mounds were coming from this, from Gyeongju, <laughs> which was pretty, which was pretty cool, actually, to see that it's, when I see something, it kind of filters through me and comes out on the paper. So, so your, your exhibit at South Shore and in, in, um, that'll be going on in February, is it going to be a retrospective or it is, is it primarily this new work? A lot of it is new work. Um, the layers just started about um, three months ago, so I don't have a lot of work oh. with the layers. But I do have some mounds in there. Um, but most of the work is, is fairly new, with I would say within the past two years. Now, I noticed in your uh, biography that uh, some of your photographs have also been published in the uh, in the journal Quest, and uh, has been also your some of your work has been like in Russia and things. So, tell us a little bit about that. Um, well, Quest doesn't exist anymore, but I did have some some of my photographs uh, uh, published in Quest when it was around, and. Um, and what was the other one? About? Well, well, and also that you've uh, your things have been presented. I think in what Russia and other places, oh. Moscow, Innsbruck. You gave a lecture there, didn't you? Didn't they? Yeah, bring you to I gave yeah. a lecture in in Moscow and one in um, in Innsbruck, Austria, and and then I'll, I give, I give talks all around this area too. I gave one at Paul Henry Gallery, Paul Henry's Gallery in Hammond, um, and I gave one at on February. 12th at the Performing Arts Center in Munster, because my show's up there right now, right. and it's going until February 25th. Sure. Um, is there any art that you have not explored that you want to? Like if you say, oh, gee, I've done this, I've done this, and you know, you're now in this new layer thing, but is there something like, gee, I'd really like to do something else. Is there been something like that you want to be challenged by? Yeah, I'm really interested in wax. I'd like to do something with cold wax or mm -hmm. hot wax uh, with layers of, <laughs> more layers, <laughs> of using, using wax with, with color, wax with colors. So you can see through the wax to the colors that are underneath. That's really what I'd like to get into right now. And I'm also doing a lot with sand right now because I hike with a Hopi woman and um, she gives me sand from the from the reservation because she loves my art, <laughs> and so she gives me brown sand and white sand. So I've been doing a lot of work with the sand, and the sand is amazing because it actually uh, in influences what goes on the paper because the sand moves the paint in different ways, and there's some details I cannot get because the sand is there, so I have to adjust my art to the sand. So the sand actually leads the painting. And my friend said, uh, she's, she has seen a couple of my sand paintings and she said that that the ancestors are, are within me and <laughs> leading me into the painting, <laughs> which I thought was a real compliment. <laughs> it's like the uh, Tibetan sand painting that they do, that the Buddhist monks do. I, I don't know if you've seen ever they do that. They do this intricate mm -hmm. thing, and then after it's all done, they blow it away. <laughs> it does, it goes they do. Away. They put it in the river. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine, mine's a little too hard to put in the river, but... Um, 
um, <laughs> but it's 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 a lot of fun. I love working with the sand. It's one of my favorite things to do. Wax, I'd love to do something. I need to watch some YouTube videos yeah. or something. <laughs> In our last moment here, we want people to find out how they can find out about you online, uh, social media, and your exhibits running through the 25th at Atrium Gallery, South Shore Arts, and the Center for Performing Arts. But how can they find you online and get in touch with you? Well, I have a website, which is DorothyGraydon.com. And I also uh, am on Facebook and Instagram under my own name, Dorothy Graydon, or Dorothy Graydon Artist sometimes, too. Very good. Well, we appreciate you coming back on the show after uh, several years that we see each other at events out there. So that's Dorothy Graydon. Her new exhibition is Somewhere in Time at the Atrium Gallery, South Shore Arts, the Center for Visual Performing Arts. And you can still get her 20 paintings that are there all the way through February 25th. And uh, so thank you so much for coming on Art on the Air. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you both. We'd like to thank our guest this week on Art on the Air, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. Art on the Air is heard Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Art on the Air is also heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP, 103.1 FM, streaming live at wvlp.org. If you have a smart speaker like Amazon Alexa, Google Assistant, or Apple Siri, just tell to play Art on the Air to hear the latest episode. Our spotlight interviews are heard every Wednesday on Lakeshore Public Media. Thanks to Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operation for Lakeshore Public Media, and Greg Kovach, WVLP's Station Manager. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We'd like to thank our current underwriters for Lakeshore Public Media, Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker. And for WVLP, Walt Reitinger of Paragon Investments. So we may continue to bring you Art in the Air. We rely on you, our listeners and underwriters, for ongoing financial support. If you're looking to support Art on the Air, we have information on our website at breck.com AOTA, where you can find out how to become a supporter or underwriter of our program in whatever amount you are able. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. You'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air. If you're interested in being a guest or send us information about your arts, arts-related event, or exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com, or contact us through our Facebook page. Your hosts were Larry Breckner and Esther Golden, and we invite you back next week for another episode of Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. Show the world your heart, express yourself through art, and show the world your heart.